I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to another chapter of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. It's been another one of those weeks, another week of events being cancelled in the book world, uh, left, right and centre, including the only event I had left where I was going to be talking to an author in public between now and the end of the year. I was supposed to be interviewing Emer McBride in August. My last physical author interview event has been cancelled and I know it's happening with so many people with events all across the country in every field of the arts. However, there are things that are moving online, including one of the world's biggest book festivals, and we'll tell you more about that in the book news a little bit later on with Stephanie Preisner. But first, Mark O'Connell embarked on a series of perverse pilgrimages, as he calls them, in the writing of his latest book. Amongst the places he visited were former US Army munitions facilities being sold as post-apocalyptic bunkers, a conference on Mars colonisation in where else but Los Angeles, he journeyed to New Zealand, the new preferred retreat of tech billionaires for when things get really bad, and he paid a visit to the vast complex of ruins that is the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. He wasn't joking when he decided to call the book Notes from an Apocalypse. Mark O'Connell, welcome to the book show. Thanks for having me, Rick. Not a problem. Um, I'm thrilled to. Uh, I loved the book. It uh, was written, though, well before what I'm euphemistically calling where we are right now. Um, the trigger for you, at least in one form anyway, was parenthood, wasn't it? Yeah, it was sort of a, I guess, it, like a tension that arose for me between, in one, like in one sense, being a parent of, uh, at that stage, one very young child and feeling a sort of a necessity to protect the child from, you know, the world, for want of a better term. And just a sense then, on the other hand, of the, the darkness of the world and like the, the way in which the future seemed to be kind of encroaching on the horizon as a very kind of dark prospect and uh, just the sense of like the unknowability of the future and a certain amount of guilt around, well, what have I brought this child into? Um, so the tension between those two things was kind of where the book arose out of. And then, of course, that led me down a lot of uh, sort of quite sort of apocalyptic paths. So was it at least in one form for you partially about the idea of, of writing a book and perhaps as well about actually physically digging in and finding some information for yourself as a parent? Yeah, I mean, like the sort of germ of it was a, like it, it sort of reduces to a question for me. And I spent a long time trying to sort of formulate this question. But really, the question was, given the way the world seems to be going and given you know, things like climate change and the fragmentation of political orders and how everything just seems to be sort of drifting towards chaos. How do I like live with a sense of meaning and purpose and raise children with a sense of meaning and purpose and sort of instill in them a sense of the world as a good and worthwhile place and a realm and the future as a kind of a realm of possibility in life. And so, yeah, like that, I suppose it became like a personal question but then it became the question for the book and you know like I didn't set out to write a book about quote-unquote the apocalypse initially um what I set out to do was to kind of explore my own anxiety but the apocalypse became a kind of an organizing principle I suppose like a metaphor like the way that I've come to think of it now is that in culture generally throughout history the apocalypse has been a response to times of very rapid change and uncertainty and times when the future seems particularly unknowable and dark and the apocalypse kind of becomes this way of giving shape to these quite 
uh, shapeless and formless anxieties that people feel and that sort of, um, you know, cultures experience. And that for me did a similar thing at the level of the book in the sense that it was a way for me to organize my anxieties and to give them kind of focus and shape. Um, so it became then a book not just about anxiety, but a book about the apocalypse and people preparing for the apocalypse. You know, one level I'm looking at, you know, preppers who are preparing their bug out bags and, you know, digging bunkers in their back gardens and so on. And then at a higher level, I'm looking at um, the builders of luxury survival bunkers in South Dakota. And then you've got people buying up land in, in New Zealand and, and Mars then with Elon Musk's sort of uh, SpaceX project and the idea that, you know, we need a backup planet for human civilization. This seemed to me to be just the highest level of this kind of apocalyptic escape sort of fantasy. Uh, yeah, because I think you came across what is a key element of it for, for those people, which is the element of the new frontier, the element of the, the unconquered and the element of a place where potentially people like the Elon Musks of this world can kind of make up their own laws and rules and countries. Mars exists in the kind of cultural imagination as like a blank slate. And I say in the book, like I'm quite sort of explicit, I say in the book that, you know, so I went to this Mars colonization conference in, in Los Angeles, which was like a quite a bizarre thing to experience. And it was, um, you know, four days of people just talking about the various ways in which like human settlement on Mars might be sort of pursued, whether it's, you know, um, what kind of currency you're going to use on Mars or like the, how the liturgical calendar is going to be affected by, you know, being however many light years from the sun to the sort of um, practical considerations of like how we get there. Um, and one of the sort of strands that I saw going through all of this was when people talk about Mars, and, you know, I'm in Los Angeles, so I'm mostly, t you know, uh, encountering Americans talking about Mars. When they talk about Mars, they're really talking about America. Um, and they're talking about a new frontier. So as with preppers and as with, like, sort of doomsday survivalists and so on, when they talk about Mars colonization, um, when they talk about the future, it's so informed by a kind of fantasy of... America's past, a fantasy of you know, the whole idea of like the expansion westward, manifest destiny, pioneers with their covered wagons striking out into the wilderness and sort of fighting off Native Americans and so on. All these things kind of play into the fantasy around colonizing Mars because it is actually a new frontier. Like one of the things about the present moment that we're in now, this kind of particular moment of modernity, is that we've run out of frontiers. Capitalism has run out of frontiers to exploit. Uh, this kind of moment of colonial expansion, on Earth at least, is over. And Mars offers a new version of that. And it's sort of the Wild West all over again. I ended up thinking uh, about you uh, in the last kind of week or two because I, I knew we were doing this interview. And it, it happened that somebody I know sent me a picture that was taken of Grafton Street in Dublin, which I think a lot of people will have seen at this stage, where grass has now started growing in the pavement on Grafton Street mm. in Dublin because people just haven't been there, even for as brief a time as we've been doing that. Now, that in my head always links with a place that you went to as well, which is, is Pripyat in the Ukraine uh, next to Chernobyl. And maybe for people who haven't seen the TV series or who, who don't know anything about it, um, the visit there, it's one of the more affecting parts of the book. What was it that surprised you most about how you, you reacted when you went there? Mm, well, you know, like, I, I guess I, I wanted to go first of all, because, 
you know, I'm writing this book about the apocalypse, about the obsession with the end of the world. And this seemed to me to be a place where you could glimpse some, some version of what that might be like, where you can glimpse a city, a very modern city, Pripyat, where nature has kind of taken over. Um, you know, it's, a, it's sort of quite a bit further down the spectrum than Grafton Street, I think it's fair to say. Um, you know, you've got sort of populations of wolves, you know, booming in this area. And, you know, you've got, you know, nature is really kind of taking over. Um, and so it's a glimpse of what it might be like, what the planet might be like after humans stop existing. And so I was first and foremost kind of interested in that, like what, what does the end of the world look like? Um, and I suppose my reaction to it was like, it was very complicated, you know, because um, it's, it's a fascinating place to go, but it's also, it's deeply uncomfortable. When I went there initially, when I went with a friend of mine who I sort of dragged with me, um, there was a lot of talk about like, what you, you know, how safe is this? How do we avoid contamination? How do we avoid, you know, straying into hotspots? And, you know, is it really as safe as the tour guides say it is? Because it's, you know, it's this tour company in Kiev that, you know, ultimately they seem pretty professional, but also ultimately they're a tour company that just want your money. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we really believe how, you know, how safe they say it is? So that was kind of the concern going, or at least part of the concern. But I found like really quickly when I was there that I stopped thinking about radiation per se and I started to think about like the ethics of my being there which is not to say that it hadn't been a concern before I went but then it became the kind of major concern like I stopped thinking about contamination and started to think of myself as contamination because it's a strange myself as a like as a a thing that shouldn't be in this place so like it's a very strange experience you're there and you're walking around you know, school rooms that have been, um, you know, that were very quickly abandoned. So, you know, little children's schoolwork is still there and you're walking around apartments, um, some of which have been ransacked, some of which have been just sort of left to fester. And it feels almost like you're a ghost from the past haunting the future or something like that. Um, And it is like, it's strange. And since I've come back, you know, to one of the aspects of the book, one of the things that I did that has kind of continued to haunt me a little bit, like uh, I found myself thinking about the ways in which the experience of the exclusion zone was kind of creeping into my experience of everyday life. This was very early on in the kind of lockdown and, and walking around, you know, the neighborhood I live in, in, in Dublin, I live in Stony Batter, which is like obviously a really sort of vibrant um, area full of life and full of lots of different kind of languages and people having parties all the time and music and just the experience of walking around the completely empty streets and not encountering any living beings, but like a cat, those kinds of things. You know, of course, it's nothing like as bleak or as strange as um, as the Chernobyl exclusion zone, but it does seem to offer a glimpse of how these things begin. Um, so that's one way in which the experience of the book has definitely continued to kind of um, live for me through through what we're go- all going through right now. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that makes the book an even more fascinating read than it would have been if all of this uh, hadn't have happened. Um, thanks a million for coming on The Book Show, Mark O'Connell. Thanks so much, Rick. Notes from an Apocalypse by Mark O'Connell is published by Granta and is out now. And here's Stephanie Preisner with this week's book news. Kirch got there first, but now the renowned Hay Festival is officially going online, Stephanie. Yes, the Hay Festival obviously had to cancel their In the Flesh version of what is the leading literary festival on the planet, arguably. Um, And so this announcement will be of interest to book lovers everywhere. So the last three weeks, they've been reshaping their programme into 80 online events. 
And in one sense, they actually have more scope than they've ever had before. And they openly admit that now they have access to a greater cast list than they probably could have gotten in person. There's people like Margaret Atwood, Benedict Cumberbatch, Tom Hollander giving their time and their talents. And then, well, I kind of find it more exciting, uh, Helena Bonham Carter, Stephen Fry and Vanessa Redgrave. That's only to name a few. So it all starts on Monday week, which is the 18th of May. And you can visit hayfestival.com for more details of all those online events. Yeah, and I think for maybe for a lot of Irish people who'd never physically make their way to the, to the Hay Festival, they'll get to see stuff online. A little bit closer to home, tell me about hashtag help sixth class. Yes, so Sarah Webb is a children's writer and she has started this thing that I saw on Twitter called hashtag help sixth class. And in short, it's sixth class students are not going to get the sort of end of primary school that they would usually have gotten before they go into first year. And so... What I am doing and what Sarah Webb and other people are doing is making short graduation videos by children's writers, sports people, musicians, scientists, whoever, to celebrate the end of primary school in a kind of a, oh, the places you'll go kind of tone, you know, acknowledging that they're in a tricky time and they've been doing great and they can't see their friends to say goodbye, but that there are great things ahead of them and their teachers will look after them. And so online on Twitter and Instagram, it's hashtag help sixth class. Um, I have a lot of primary school teachers following me, but if you are listening to this and you are a primary school teacher, you can look up the hashtag and see if you could get in contact with someone that you know your class would really appreciate hearing from for their graduation. OK, you're going to tell us as well what happens when the Gruffalo meets the coronavirus in Ireland. So Axel Scheffler is the award-winning illustrator who you will know from the pictures that... Uh, chart the Gruffalo's journey through the book and he is illustrating a free digital book for primary school children about the coronavirus and the measures that are being taken to control it. So this is a global book, it's for free for everyone. It was first published by Nosy Crow in the UK but we have an Irish specific version that Luke O'Neill speaks really highly of and it's free for anyone to read. Uh, you can read it on screen or you can print it out and it's available at gillbooks.ie uh, also happening this week, uh, award season uh, is continuing to be up and running. Prizes handed out and long and short lists coming out as well. Yes, the Sunday Times Audible Short Story Award is out. And there's 17 names on the long list. Six of them are Irish, which is cool. And five of them are American. So we've got Roddy Doyle, Joseph O'Neill, Louise Kennedy. She was also shortlisted in nine, 2019. Leo Cullen, Niamh Campbell and Mello Doherty. And you might remember that Ireland's Danielle McLaughlin won first prize last year. And the Pulitzer Prizes have been announced this year as well. And for once, I've read one of the books that's won something. I will never read a Pulitzer Prize winning book, I'd say. But I'm just kind of resigned to that. Um, I know that The Nickel Boys has been, you know, praised for being spare and devastating. And like it probably is great, you know, but I don't know, there's just something about Pulitzer Prizes that puts me off. I mean, can we just for a second talk about the non-fiction Pulitzer Prize winnings, right? They have these very long and very sombre titles. So <laughs> the non-fiction was one. Listen to this. The Undying, colon. Pain, vulnerability, mortality, medicine, art, time, dreams, data, exhaustion, cancer and care by Anne Boyer. I mean, who's going to read that book? And then another one was The End of the Myth From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America by Greg Grandin. Now, what does that even mean? 
Anyway, they're Pulitzer Prize winning, so they must be great. I, I think you might need to reassess your attitude to the Pulitzer Prizes, Stephanie. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda won one for Hamilton. Okay, that's grand. But Hamilton, you can also like sit in front of and watch people singing at you. I mean, I feel like I've achieved something by just reading the title of these books. You can with Hamilton, although unfortunately not these days, and that saddens me greatly. So we're going to finish up there for this week. Stephanie Preisner, thanks a million as usual. Thanks, Rick. It's time for a book club now to put some questions to a willing author. This week we're going to Tremor and to the Tuesday-Thursday book club, and here's Paula Paul to tell us more. Our book club started back in 2017, almost three years ago, in Tremor Library. It was designed to appeal to people working on shift, but not exclusively, as it's run over two days a month, the first Tuesday at half ten in the morning and the first Thursday evening of the month at 7pm. This way you can join the book club and come to either session as they both read the same book. We started out with just a handful of ladies and now we have between 8 to 10 who regularly turn up to the Tuesday morning session and anywhere from 12 to 15 for the Thursday evening session. The group decided they didn't want to restrict the reading to any one genre and were prepared to read books out of their comfort zone. So we've read fiction, non-fiction, biographies, crime and even a classic novel. Even though we're on lockdown during the coronavirus outbreak, we still meet on Zoom once a month and it's keeping us all connected and reading. Near the end of last year, we read Skin Deep by Liz Nugent and we had a brilliant review meeting afterwards. Before we talk to Liz, here's Paula once again with a little bit of a scene setter for Skin Deep. I could probably have been an actress. It's not that difficult to pretend to be someone else. Isn't that what I've been doing most of my life? This is Cordelia Russell. She has been living on the French Riviera for 25 years, passing herself off as an English socialite. But her luck and the kindness of strangers has run out. The arrival of a visitor from her distant past shocks Cordelia. She reacts violently to the intrusion and flees her flat to spend a drunken night at a glittering party. As dawn breaks, she stumbles home through the dark streets. Even before she opens her door, she can hear the flies buzzing. She did not expect the corpse inside to start decomposing quite so quickly. Yeah, to be honest with you, it wouldn't be a Liz Nugent book without something like that happening in it. And Liz Nugent joins me now. How are you, Liz? Hi, Rick. How are you? I'm great. You have, and I didn't know this, a bit of a history with this particular library. Yes, much to my mortification, the very first time I was invited to a library, it was to Tremor Library. And I think it was fairly shortly after Unraveling Oliver came out in 2014. And because I'm used to working in libraries, like people dress very casually in libraries. Nobody dresses up to go to the library. So I just thought I would turn up and there'd be six or eight people there and we'd have a cup of tea and we'd talk about the book and then I'd go home. Lo and behold, when I got there, there was, I think, uh, Tracy from the library told me later that there was like 110 people there. Everybody was dressed up to the nines. The mayor was there. A local councillor was there. And I was wearing my jumper and my probably my best jeans, but still jumper and jeans and 
totally unprepared, totally unprepared. So I was absolutely mortified, but I could not have got a better welcome into, you know, the whole library thing. I was absolutely bowled over, but I can't claim that it was all for me. It was also, as I realised, the anniversary of the library. I think the library had opened, had been open 20 years or something like that, or there was some, there was some other occasions. So they weren't all there for me, <laughs> but still it was very daunting and a bit frightening. But I couldn't have had a better welcome and a better introduction to uh, library audiences. It was fantastic. Well, we're going to take some questions from the Tuesday, Thursday book club okay. in Tremore. The first we have is from Michelle Delaney. When developing your main characters who are not meant to be likeable, how do you go about deciding just how much has happened to them in their past that might explain some of their negative behaviours and actions without tipping the balance too far so that the reader doesn't view them too sympathetically and see them as a victim? Well, I guess um, Delia in Skin Deep is certainly not a victim because she is... A sociopath, so she doesn't actually care what people think about her. I don't. I didn't plot all of the events that were going to happen in her life. I just looked at the next kind of obvious thing that might happen to her, and then found a way for that not to be possible, so that she took a different course of action. I try never be to be predictable because I, if I can guess what's coming up in the book, then so can the reader. So I try to surprise myself as I'm writing. So I think the answer to that is that there wasn't a whole lot of plotting exactly what happened to the character. The trick, I think, is to make them compelling, to make them interesting and to make you want to keep following them regardless of how awful and how horrible they are. And yes, most of my characters are unlikable. Spoiler alert. But um, yeah, it's pretty much trace the life and wonder where would she wash up next or, you know, what would she do? Or, you know, when she went to France, it was the place where she was happiest because she was beside the sea and because she learned to swim. The sea is a very big draw for her, having grown up on a tiny island off the west coast of Mayo. So uh, I, I think... That might answer your question. Question two from Tremor comes from Maeve Brannock. Hi, Liz. I was wondering if you felt that Cordelia's beauty helped her in life or did it serve ultimately to sort of propel her to her own ruin? Um, Yes, I think it definitely ended up destroying her in the end because she, from a young age, was told that she was so beautiful and that she was the most beautiful girl in the world. So she attached all of her value to her beauty and that ultimately was her ruin. And our final question from Tremor is from Mary Allen. Nature versus nurture. Delia could be described as extraordinarily cruel, selfish and manipulative. Even as a child, her actions and words have devastating consequences. Is it in her nature to behave in the way that she does? Her father was cruel and stubborn. Nothing stopped him getting his way. Or was it his nurturing, his blindsiding of any poor behaviour and putting her on a pedestal that created the monster? Was there ever any hope for Delia? Well, I I kind of, um, I leave that up to the reader to decide. Um, I don't come down one side or the other 
either when I'm writing or, you know, afterwards, I think Delia was quite a selfish child. You know, she would hurt her brothers when nobody was looking or when she thought nobody was looking. She was never a nice child, but she was the product of a father who thought that she could do no wrong. So there's both there, there's nature and nurture. And I don't think Delia, given the experiences that she had in later life, growing up until she ends up kind of washed up at the age of 50-something with a corpse in her flat, I don't think she could have ended up any other way, given the experiences that she had. So it was definitely in her nature not to be capable of loving another human being outside of her father. But it was also not in her nature to be able to accept love from another human being. So the experiences she had along the way informed that. Like she could be unbelievably cruel, but unbelievably vulnerable at the same time. She was a victim and an aggressor. Yeah, I I leave that to the readers just to decide whether that's nature or nurture. Maybe just before we finish, the new book is Our Little Cruelties. It came out just before the lockdown. Yet it's been at the top of the book charts for the last six weeks. That doesn't seem to have stopped people from, from getting to it. I presume that's very pleasing. It is very satisfying. And I'm really grateful to the booksellers for going above and beyond to get it into the hands of readers. So I want to say a big shout out to the booksellers and of course to the readers who went to the trouble to buy it online or over the phone with their local bookseller. Um, Thank you both, readers and booksellers. I'm very pleased to be in the position I'm in and I'm eternally grateful to you. Liz, this is always a pleasure. Thanks a million. Stay safe and I'll talk to you soon and thanks for joining us on The Book Show. Thank you so much for having me. Good luck and stay safe and wash your hands. Which is good advice at the best of times. My thanks as well to the Tremor Library Tuesday Thursday Book Club. If your book club would like to take part, get in touch with us now by sending us your details to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. I'll talk to you again next week. As ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books featured on the programme.